Welcome to this week's episode of Wall Street to Main Street. I'm your host, Emily Bonnie, here with my co-host, finance expert and author, and of course, my darling husband, Ruben Ivani. Hi, Emily. And I like the fact that you added my darling. Clearly, you want something from me. We'll talk about that later. Well, I do want something from you. There is a lot to explain going on in the news lately. It seems like everyone is buzzing about these new tariffs that President Trump has imposed. What is going on here? Well, this has been uh, an ongoing story. The growing trade war between the U.S. and China. One of President Trump's campaign promises was to level the playing field. And while his methods seem unorthodox, to an extent, uh, it's clear that he intends to do just what he promised. Whether he succeeds or not is 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 another story. So, the most recent round of, of tariffs imposes uh, tariffs on around $200 billion worth of goods or imports from China. The idea behind this is it makes Chinese goods more expensive for the American consumer and, in theory, pushes the American consumer to buy American. In other words, it's an effort to improve the balance of trade between the U.S. and China. And that is one of the White House's primary concerns. In essence, the White House believes that China benefits more from this relationship than the U.S. does. Uh, A secondary aspect of all of this is to really bring China to the bargaining table to discuss ways to improve other aspects of global commerce. And specifically, as it pertains to China, there are concerns around IP, intellectual property, and intellectual property theft. Uh, For many years, American companies have been doing business in China, setting up partnerships with Chinese companies, and marketing products into the Chinese market. But protecting the IP, whether it's technology or content or processes, is increasingly difficult in a country like China. So the White House is pushing for more restrictions around IP. All in all, this is, by most accounts, an effort in posturing. The U.S. is trying to stand up to China and show them that that we're in control. We'd like to sit down with them, but we need to understand that they will have to make serious concessions. Well, there's a few things I want to parcel out here. One, you said $200 Is that correct? I believe that was the, the number, correct. Can you give us an idea of... What does that mean? Is $200 billion a lot? Is it a big portion of our trade? Is it a small portion of our trade? Well, it's, it's not inconsequential. And also keep in mind, this is, this is staged. So this is the, the next round, and potentially there will be more rounds. And the, the, the current tariffs are set at 10%, but that could increase to 25% by the end of the year. So what we're looking at is a possible series of tariffs across different product classes over time. So is it significant right now? No, in a, in, a, in a vacuum, it's not significant. But if we're imposing tariffs on an additional $200 billion uh, worth of goods in the next few months and so on and so forth, that, that those numbers grow in aggregate. And before long, much of what we're importing from China uh, has a tariff assigned to it. And you, when you first said the word staged, 
I thought you meant staged as in presented, like you said, posturing, mm-hmm. but I realized you mean stage as in the series. It's sort correct. of a double entendre there, yeah, though. Correct. You know what? Maybe there's this is all just a big uh, conspiracy. Maybe these terrorists are, are actually just part of a, a master plan that we're, we're not privy to. So, yeah, exactly. And I'm going to back it up even more and ask what I think is a much more simple question. At, at bottom line, what is a tariff? Uh, it's essentially a tax on goods. Think of it almost as a sales tax, but it's uh, considered a tariff when it has to do with, with trade. So if we're importing goods from China and we assign a tariff, we're basically taxing those goods to make them less attractive to domestic consumers. Okay, well, that's helpful because I think sometimes we use these terms. We chit chat over dinner tables. We say, did you hear in the news tariff this, tariff that? And we're not even exactly sure what we're talking about. So that's helpful, Ruben. I also want to add that the implications of a tariff go beyond the consumer. They impact other aspects of the economy. The stock market is often a key beneficiary or a key casualty of a tariff. What was most intriguing to me about the recent round of tariffs was the somewhat muted reaction from the stock market. So we didn't see when this announcement was made, we didn't see. We saw a mild sell off initially. And and since then, the market has been ticking higher. And what the market is signaling is that it essentially expects the two sides to eventually come to the table. And this trade war is really a process which hopefully in the long run will yield better results for the U.S. economy. That belief may easily reverse if China signals that they're not willing to talk, that they're willing to escalate this trade war and potentially escalate it beyond the realm of tariffs. This could, in fact, uh, become a currency war. This could lead to uh, a blockage of trade, an embargo even. So if it comes to that, we're in the midst of an all-out trade war, and I don't believe the stock market will take kindly. And you say currency war. What does that look like? Well, China has been accused of being a currency manipulator. In essence, uh, the belief is that Chinese, well, (laughs) maybe it's fact, it depends who you ask, but China keeps its currency low relative to the U.S. dollar. And because they keep their currency low relative to the U.S. dollar, Chinese goods are cheaper than U.S. goods. And what that does is it encourages American companies to buy Chinese. If you walk into a store, you walk into a, well, a good example would be a discount store, a dollar store. Take a look around. 99% of what you find in the dollar store is made in China. So those squishies that I buy my kids yes. in the five below type store? Yes. China has cornered the market on squishies. (laughs) And it it can do so because it keeps the the currency weak. And because our dollar is strong relative to the Chinese yuan, we can buy as many squishies as we want. And we can pass that savings on to the consumer. It makes it harder then for an American squishy brand to compete. And I want to do, I want to parcel out one more word in there. You said embargo. What does an embargo look like? What is an embargo? Well, it's an all out blockage of trade. It's basically putting a halt on certain items. That seems pretty 
That's pretty far, draconian. Yeah, that's... and it seems pretty far-fetched. I guess anything's possible. Anything's possible. You can't rule out anything. Uh, I, if you would have asked me a year ago if we would have been engaged in an all-out trade war, I would have said absolutely not. That would be economic suicide. But yet, here we are. And the other thing I was thinking when you were mentioning how the stock market only had a mild sell-off, could this also be the market's sort of coming to terms with that our new status quo is a little bit volatile? That they're sort of, Is there any sense they're getting used to this sort of, we don't know what's coming next? I think given the developments of the last year or so, I think market participants understand that this is a White House unlike any other. It's unpredictable, it's erratic, and it's extreme. And I think because of that, the market believes that these types of disruptions are just a fact of life. And if you're investing, you have to look at the quality of a company and you have to understand a company's ability to weather this type of geopolitical tumult. Okay, so that's our stock market here in the US, but what about the Chinese stock market? The Chinese stock market has been been hit hard. And if you use the stock market movements as a gauge or almost a point system in terms of who's, who's faring better in this trade war, well, it looks like we are. The Chinese stock market is down significantly. In fact, it's interesting to note that the Chinese government retaliated with an announcement that they would be imposing tariffs on $60 billion worth of U.S. goods. Now, coming back to a question you raised a, a, few, a few minutes ago, in the big scheme of things, that's, that's inconsequential for the U.S. economy. But it nonetheless is symbolic that the Chinese government is willing to stand up to the U.S. But what really matters is how do the respective economies fare in the midst of, of this back and forth. The Chinese stock market is down significantly. And uh, advisors in the White House believe that the Chinese have much more to lose than, than we do here in the United States. And if the stock market performance is any indication, well, that seems to be the case. Are we going to expect uh, a tweet from the White House, hashtag winning, or we're not <laughs> quite there yet? <laughs> I don't think we're quite there yet. I think that would be premature, but nothing would surprise me at this point. So I think in the coming weeks, we, we, we should be mindful of stock market performance because uh, the stock market is often seen as, as a forward indicator of the economy. When people are feeling confident in the future of a country's economy, they tend to buy stock in companies. And right now, I think that uh, the, the investor public seems to have a reasonable level of confidence in the U.S. economy. And as such, the market has been chugging along rather nicely. Clearly, there are up days and there are down days, but there haven't been any significant sell-offs uh, in the last few weeks. And the effects on consumers from these tariffs, on the products we consume, things like that, how long does that take to catch up to a company's stock? When the consumer starts to feel it, do we feel these things immediately and then all of a sudden there's an effect on that company their numbers are automatically down. Are we going to have to wait for the next quarter results? When are we going to start to see that consumer, that what they're feeling really start to affect stock prices? So this is, this is an interesting um, paradigm when it comes to government interve- intervention in financial matters. Normally, when governments react to uh, 
economic forces, the movements can be felt six, nine, 12 months down the road. But when it comes to tariffs, the movements can be felt far sooner. In fact, within the next quarter, think about it from the perspective of a, of a company impacted by a tariff. Let's suppose that you run a big multinational company and you export your goods to another company. That country within which reside those consumers who buy your products has just imposed a significant tariff on your product. Call it a 10% tariff. Well, now your product is 10% more expensive. Consumers look at your product and think, I'm going to find a substitute. Rather than pay 10% for the import, I'm going to buy the same product, a comparable product from a local manufacturer so that I don't have to pay 10% more. Or if it's a non-necessity, I'm just going to cut it out altogether. If it's a non-necessity, like a luxury car, I'm going to cut it out altogether and I'll buy the domestic economy car. Well, watch what that does to your profits. Before long, if 50, 60% of your business comes from that country, well, guess what? You're in dire straits. Within one quarter, your business could be... Uh, teetering on the verge of bankruptcy. Now that's an extreme case. More, more than likely people will still buy your product, uh, but perhaps in, in, in smaller numbers, or maybe they'll buy a lower grade product, a one that's at a lower price point. But the fact of the matter is within a quarter, you will see the deleterious impact of a tariff. And if we're going to be spending more and still buying these goods, let's say those companies stay healthy because we decide, well, you know, we'll we'll pay the ten percent more. That means there's money that we're allocating to that that maybe we used to spend somewhere else at home, right? So maybe we're not distributing our money in ways that would impact multiple companies that would be good for companies that aren't affected by the tariffs. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, yes. So it, it could. It would depend on the size of the company, the, the real scale around that particular product. If it's a necessity, something that our economy depends on and consumers buy it in droves, then yes, it affects uh, how individuals allocate their resources. They decide we'll pay the 10% more, but we'll cut back elsewhere. So you really have to look at what the substitutes are and, and you now delve into uh, higher level concepts in finance and economics about opportunity costs and substitutions. But the bottom line is that tariffs affect macro and micro. Yes, I think that's a good takeaway from all of this. You, you can see the effect of a tariff on the macro ec economy and you can see the effect on a micro level when you look at the, uh, at the companies that are impacted by them and even the individuals who are impacted by them. Ruben, let's switch gears here and talk about something that's a little bit more up my alley. That's the Emmy Awards. I mean, I'm a huge consumer of all things entertainment. And I have to say, there is a link, right? We can talk about this. There is a link between pop culture, entertainment, specifically the Emmys, and the stock market, right? Absolutely. Entertainment is a big driver behind financial markets. We consume a great deal of entertainment. In fact, some would argue our economy is entirely driven by entertainment in one way, shape, or form because entertainment itself is so vast. It goes beyond simple TV shows. We're now talking about 
live streaming the news 24 hours a day. We're now talking about content on demand. We're talking about education content that is now part of these massive portals. The bottom line here is that uh, financial markets and the world of entertainment and entertainment content are inextricably linked. Okay, so what went on at the Emmys that had a direct effect on the market? Or sort of, maybe sort of linked. Well, I think most notably, Netflix came home with 23 Emmys. Actually, both Netflix and HBO each came away with uh, 23 Emmys. And I think that was an impressive feat for these two networks that, um, I'm not even sure I'd call them networks. I think they're more in a, in a class on their own. But I, I, I think only a few years ago, people couldn't wrap their head around the ideas of Netflix producing original content winning awards for it, and then monetizing it in the context of its value. So I think, I think this is truly a watershed moment that's been, um, uh, been in the works for quite some time. So Netflix has really become a, a major player. I mean, they are a part of our consumer psyche now and what we consume. I don't think people even really decipher anymore when you put on your smart television you click on the hbo app you click on the netflix app or you go to your basic cable but it all feels very fluid that that's exactly right you don't think about netflix as uh an old uh, mail order video service okay but i do know at least one customer who still gets the dvds in the mail and i'm looking across stop it stop at that person Thanks for throwing me under the bus. We had to go out and buy a DVD player just so, or Blu-ray, whatever it is, just so you could watch your Netflix DVDs. And I'm pretty sure you're one of maybe three people who still subscribe to those DVDs. You're killing my reputation here. I'm trying to come across and as then a you, forward-thinking <laughs> thought leader. And, and then you, you make the me... world that I, uh, I use technology that's 20, 25 years old. And then you get on my case about getting it back in the mailbox because you're so worried about not getting the next DVD in. Before this blows up into an all-out brawl, husband and wife conflict, I want to say this. There's a logic to this. I can't get the content I want strictly off of streaming. So if some, sometimes I want to see a certain movie and it's available on DVD, I'm going to buy it. Plus, I like holding my film. Does that make sense? For those of us who are from an older generation, sure. All right. All right. Let, let's, let's move on. So go ahead. Was the stock price for Netflix up after yeah, the Emmys? Yes, it was. It was up quite quite significantly. I'll make you look smart now. Thank you. Uh, it was up quite significantly because the uh, the quality of this original programming is attracting viewers in droves. Uh, I, I can say that uh, in spite of the fact that I gravitate towards the DVD mail order service, I do like the original content. I think House of Cards, for example, is one of the best shows on TV. And... Netflix continues to produce these landmark shows and people are signing up for Netflix to have access to these shows. And there is significant value in that subscriber. Netflix as a company has changed the way people think about valuation. Historically, valuation was simply a matter of a company's corporate earnings and corporate earnings growth. But in a company like Netflix, investors look beyond that number. 
that number of corporate earnings, and they look more towards how is this company growing its user base? And Netflix has grown by leaps and bounds, and that tends to be the prime driver of its stock price. So once again, the market is reacting to not just dollars and cents, but to eyeballs, subscribers, users. We This isn't the only company where the eyeballs on the content or the number of people subscribing, not even necessarily paying, um, is what it drives the valuation of the company and or would, part of it. And I would add even one more element to all of that. Data. The amount of data that Netflix amasses from this substantial user base is invaluable. It's the kind of thing that someday somebody will figure out how to parse through that data. Obviously, Netflix is pioneering the technology to sort through it, but what they can do with it and how they can break it down to each granular element of information is still, still evolving. But the lesson in all of this is that investors are willing to take a chance and they're willing to bet that Netflix is going to continue to lead the way in terms of monetizing the data through this rapidly growing user base. So there are a lot of people using Netflix, but it's still definitely one of these volatile stocks. I, I would say so. There's, uh, you know, not always a clear set of metrics that defines how Netflix is going to grow or perform. And as a result, that does create some volatility because a lot of it is based on speculation. Speaking of volatile stocks, the cannabis stock Tilray has been all over the board. You are absolutely right. These last uh, several trading sessions has seen huge spikes and huge declines. In fact, at one point uh, recently, the stock was up as much as 90% in one day. That stock was soaring as, pardon the expression, high as a kite. Okay. So with this, you hear a lot about short selling. And can you put that in context with this stock specifically and just in general? So oftentimes, huge surges in value can be attributed to short selling. Short selling is a uh, often used technique in stock trading and one that's uh, used by generally more sophisticated investors. So the way it works is as follows. When you sell a company's shares short, you are betting that the price will go down and it works as follows. Let's say you're looking at this company Tilray and you believe, well, we're still a long ways away from really uh, developing commercially viable marijuana, what uh, a product that's going to scale and a product that's going to ultimately generate strong profit growth. So as a result, you think maybe this is a bit of a bubble and you'd like to profit from a decline in price. So what can happen then is you actually put in an order to sell shares short, which means you sell the share based on a share that you've borrowed. And when the price declines, you can cover or close your position by buying it back at a lower price and then replacing that share that you borrowed. So in essence, you're profiting from the downward movement in the stock's price. So this is 
a time when you believe a stock is at a peak and you're betting that it's going to go down. Precisely. And is there a time frame for that? Do people say, oh, I bet it's going to go down in a day, in an hour, in three months, six months? All of the above. Some people will take a short position and hold on to it for months. Others will take a short position and close it quickly within a matter of hours. When you do borrow these shares, you often pay interest. Depending on how many shares are available to short, actual the process of actually borrowing them comes with a cost. And in some cases, that can be a rather significant cost. Now, is Tilray something that you would short? Uh, I don't have an opinion on Tilray. I tell you, it's one of these industries that's so young, it's very difficult to have any kind of clear outlook. Sure, you can argue it's overvalued, but yet uh, we've seen how this plays out with other things like uh, like Bitcoin. Last year, people said Bitcoin was overvalued um, when it was trading, um, you know, around a few thousand dollars a share or a coin rather, and the price then soared to somewhere around twenty thousand dollars a coin. So the people who bet against Bitcoin lost their shirts in a short period of time. Now, of course, the price came back down. But timing is everything. And for somebody who has done these kinds of trades in the past, I can say when the price is moving against you quickly, panic can set in. And that's a very dangerous position to be in. And that's why I tend not to speculate too aggressively on things like like Tilray. You don't want to get emotional about business. I don't want to get emotional about business. Yeah. So one of our takeaways today with these volatile stocks is there's multiple positions that you can take. And if you have the stomach for it um, and you have a certain gut feeling about where it's going to go, possibly shorting it. Possibly shorting it. If you really believe that something is overvalued, a way to profit from that overvaluation is by selling shares short. Any other takeaways that we can give to our listeners before we sign off on this episode? Well, I'd add add one more point on this, uh, this concept of short selling. The flip side of it is that sometimes it can cause a stock's price to surge because when news comes out that speaks to uh, upward potential, what can happen is what's called a short squeeze. So all the folks who sold short now start to panic and they're rushing to cover their position. The problem is there are not enough shares to go around. So what happens is they bid up the price significantly so they can close their position. And many speculate that's what that's what happened uh, recently with Tilray. And that's why the price surged almost 90% in the course of one day. Okay. Well, that's something good to keep in mind, Ruben. Once again, thank you for joining us for this episode of Wall Street to Main Street. Join us again, where we cover topics in business, the economy, and the stock market. We try to break it down in simple, digestible terms. Ruben, thank you. Thanks, Emily.